Um, good evening, everybody. Um, uh, good evening and welcome to LSE. If you're from outside LSE, um, welcome um, that you've stayed on at LSE if you, if, if you work here. Um, on this, this evening, I'm going to try and get everything going quite quickly. There's another event on later this evening, so um, we are supposed to stop at um, half past seven, so I don't want to use up too much of people's time. Um, um, our job this evening is to focus on another of William Beveridge's five giants on the road to reconstruction that he started his 1942 report on social insurance and allied services, the world's least inspiring title for something that had pretty revolutionary effects. This giant is the giant squalor. Um, in itself, I did not imagine that I would be standing on a stage in 2018 talking about squalor um, in Britain. Um, but here we are. But to do that, we couldn't have three better speakers. Um, Danny Dawling, who will be speaking first, um, must need no introduction to any of you. You will, read, you will each have read at least one, if not several, of his many books. In fact, I rather hope that by having him here this evening, it means he can't be writing another one and showing up the rest of us in terms of his productivity. But in particular, um, his book on British housing policy um, and the housing market, all that is solid, um, is relevant to this. There will then be responses to what Danny is saying from Anne Power, from LSE, from LSE Housing and Communities, um, and the Centre for Analysis of Social Exclusion, and my department, the Social Policy Department, at which point I've realised I've failed to say my name is John Hills, and I'm also from the Social Policy Department. Um, she's been working um, in the UK, having worked elsewhere, um, for, um, on housing and communities for more years um, than I'm sure she would like to mention, um, but has found in the last six months since the Grenfell tragedy and the renewed interest and focus on housing and on housing inequalities um, that, that that work has intensified. And then Lindsay Hanley will be known to you through her book Estates, her more recent book Respectable, and I'm sure to many of you through her Radio 4 series um, Streets Apart. Um, I think their books will be for sale outside afterwards, and maybe if you grab them nicely, um, they might even sign them for you. Um, before we start, could you turn your mobiles, which won't look like this, but could you turn your mobiles <laughs> and electronic devices to silent? Um, I was going to see what the hashtag was, but I can't see a hashtag. Oh, it's a hashtag. It's hashtag LSE Beverage, and I imagine the LSE and the B are capitals. Thank you very much. Um, but, um, but you can, therefore, if you tweet silently, um, please do tweet. But can I now hand over to Danny Dorling? Danny. I'm going to rattle through this very quickly. I've got just under 15 minutes. Um, I've resisted doing any talk with the word Grenville in the title until now, because other than going past it on the bus from Oxford to London, I know nothing, of course, about Grenville Tower. But I'm going to show you some things, some things you may not know, and I'm going to talk about housing policy and what I think should happen, and the links between inequality 
and housing in Britain today and just how fast this has come to the fore now. If you go back to Beveridge's time, um, Beveridge was writing in the war, writing at a time when we just lost a large amount of housing, lost it because of bombing. Um, we had a housing crisis then because there literally wasn't enough housing. People from the East End had moved over to the West End to house themselves because they were bombed out. A little later, after the report was published, the V2 bombs began to be able to reach the West End of London and the middle class moved out of Notting Hill very quickly, very quietly. Housing was left vacant. People who were bombed out in the East moved in. If you've ever wondered why there's a Notting Hill carnival, and why West Indians were able to house themselves in Notting Hill in the 1950s, part of the story has to do with that and the V2 bombs. Child in the window. When a child looks down for a window in a block of flats today in the UK, what they see is the economically most divided country in all of Europe. These divisions are made most obviously visible and increasingly strongly felt for ever more segregated system of housing. That child will see people sleeping, living on the street, more and more people every year. That child will have friends who've been housed by the council because they are homeless. They may not know it, but they will have. People are very embarrassed about this. They don't tell their stories. That child may well go up to Sofa Surf if they move to London. And that child will hear rich people talk a different language about asking prices and school fees. This particular child slightly haunts me. Uh, I think the child's got their finger up. Uh, when Mary Shaw and I took the picture in 1998 of the tenements in Shettleston in Glasgow, we didn't realise there was a child in the window. We thought they were empty. Uh, what you can see coming out halfway down those flats is raw sewage. Um, this was a kind of situation of housing in the poorest parts of Britain 20 years ago. It's been demolished and changed, but if you want an idea of modern-day squalor, you could find that still today. People often talk about how things have got better, and of course they get better, and of course they were awful in the past. In the 1950s, the middle class lived with single glazing and can remember how cold their housing was. But as things have got better, they haven't got better as quickly as they've got better everywhere else in Europe. Um, we shouldn't be satisfied with what we've had. Some statistics for you. I'll rattle through them very, very quickly. The majority of the children in the sky, at least in England, on the fifth floor or above, are not white. Uh, we first found that out in 2005. It tells us a lot about ourselves as a country. The number of people officially recorded as sleeping on the streets rose from 1,768 in 2010 to over 4,000 in 2016, rising again to 4,751 by 2017. True figures at least twice that. Most homeless people are hiding. They're sleeping in places you can't see them. Homeless families officially housed. Numbers rocketing from 50 to 78,000 by 2017. I haven't got there, but last three years, the number of children who are in B&Bs at Christmas keeps on rising every Christmas, well over 100,000. Now there are 225,000 people in London 
just aged between 16 and 25 who are sofa surfing, who don't actually have a proper bedroom. Tonight, and the upper middle class are concerned about the asking price of a flat in Fulham. They are. And this is what people will talk about in dinner tables. And the majority of schools and hospitals in Kensington and Chelsea are private because people in Kensington and Chelsea live parallel lives. The rich live parallel, completely and utterly separated parallel lives. And we don't talk about their parallel lives. We try to talk about other people's, which aren't. Census area E0001-4444, postcode W111TQ. There are 3,170 areas that are officially poorer than this area. The area is where the tower is. It's just under the West Way, just to the east of Westfield. Train line runs under it. You can see the shadow of the tower over the train line. The map here is the modern-day version of Charles Booth's maps. The dark red areas are the poorest tenth in Britain. Timing mattered. If it had not been, if the disaster and tragedy had not been six days after that election, I suspect media management would have been different. Let's put it like that. You wouldn't have had a shell-shocked Prime Minister. You wouldn't have a country quite reeling, not knowing what was going on. Six days after an election with the biggest swing in the history of British elections, the fastest swing ever in two months, a bigger swing than 1945, because the 1945 election swing occurred in 10 years. Part of the reason why Grenfell is such a big story is the timing of when it happened and the state that the elite were in at the time. And the other is the irony of the area. And the area has always fascinated geographers, Nottingdale. And you're going to see lots and lots of this. There'll be documentaries and there will be books and they'll all talk about the history of Nottingdale and the piggeries and the potteries and so on. Um, and the cheek by jowl nature of extreme wealth of extreme poverty and how uh, Charles Darwin... Sorry. Uh, <laughs> not Charles Darwin. I'm getting myself carried away. <laughs> Charles Darwin's about the only Charles who had nothing to do with Nottingdale, as far as I know. <laughs> Caff Kidson, just to put in a randomness, but the head offices of Caff Kidson, I remember looking at this years ago and thinking, why are they there? Why are they there, Caff Kidson? Um, the cousin of Kirsty Olsop is there. And it's the cheek by jowlness of poverty and wealth. Zooming out. Again, this map, again, the tower is in blue in the middle. And you're going less than a kilometre away and you get to Kensington Palace Gardens with the average price of 36.1 million. Down 700,000 in the last 12 months, according to Zoopla. Um, there is nowhere on earth with inequalities as ridiculous and as wide as this. One graph from Becky Tunstall, Emeritus Professor now at University of York. Um, just look at the top line, and I think the top line is the most useful line. What it is, and this is the only graph I'm going to give you tonight because I won't have enough time, is the ratio of how many rooms the best of tenth in the population had compared to the worst of tenth. 
And way back in 1911, the best-off tenth had four times as many rooms in their houses as the worst-off tenth. We were very unequal. That became even worse by 1921. But then, progressively, decade after decade, the inequality in British housing, essentially how crowded the poor are compared to how much space the rich have, reduced to the socialist utopia of 1981, when the best-off tenth had three times as many rooms each per person as the worst-off tenth. We couldn't have that anymore. That had to change. And so we abolished the kind of rent regulations that we'd had for decades. We stopped building social housing. We made it much easier for people to own multiple homes and leave them empty and so on. And you see that huge increase up to the best-off tenth having five times more rooms per person as compared to the worst house tenth in the country. It's not entirely economic inequality rising, but it is largely. Ageing mattered as well. But we have enough houses in this country for everybody to be well housed without having to build any more. We can build some more, it'd be great to build some more, but we already have enough. We have enough in London. We have enough bedrooms in London, excluding all the hotels and hostels, for everybody to sleep in a bed. Even if you've, none of you want to share that bed with anybody else, you can all have your own bed. And that's how many there are even in London. The red and the green wrap around each other when you look at these maps of poverty and wealth. Why do we still have such poverty in London? I honestly think we need to talk about poverty creators, poverty maintainers. Who creates and maintains poverty? Rather than talk about wealth creation. But for your middle class dinner table, here is the falling number of transactions in Fulham. Things are going on. It's getting interesting. House prices have been declining for, what, 18 months so far in London? Something's changing. And here's the rent bill for the whole country getting very close to overtaking the mortgage bill as all of your futures are to be private renters. And as there are more children in London in private rented accommodation than in social housing. Having to move on average once every two years, losing all their friends, losing their schools again and again. Zooming out again, and you get the poor, beleaguered Mrs May. There was no reason to expect that Mrs May should have any qualifications whatsoever to be able to cope on that day in Notting Hill. She had been segregated from society by her father, who moved her through a series of schools to try to make sure she never had to mix with the majority of children in Oxfordshire, where she grew up. She went to the nearest grammar to the school that I went to, which is part of the reason why I'm interested in it, and she became the MP for Maidenhead, that green blob over there. Conservatives simply don't know. There's no reason why they should know. No reason why they, we should think they should understand. <laughs> what we need, only one more slide to go after this. We need a compulsory purchase of buildings so that we don't have thousands of people on our streets. Not many of them, but there's no need to have so many people sleeping rough on the streets. We need rent regulation brought in Short-hold tenancy agreements of one year simply have to stop being legal. That requires a new government to do it. We need capital gains on all properties. 
As Kate Barker has suggested, many of these recommendations are not radical. Kate Barker was on the Monetary Policy Committee. We need council tax which is proportional and keeps on going up the more your property is worth, so that property stops being worth £36 million. We need a right to sell so that people can become a tenant in the house where they're currently paying a mortgage and that house enters the social housing system and we get more social housing properties that way and you're not affected by your bank. We need to use Newtown legislation to purchase agricultural land at agricultural prices within cycling distance of public transport hubs at cities. This has been suggested by John Healy, the Shadow Housing Minister. We need a government that has some idea of the lived experiences of 99% of the population and does not see mortgages as being for little people. <coughs> it's as stark as that. We've got to stop being polite anymore. We are currently ruled by a set of ministers who are so wealthy and attached that it is wrong of us to expect them to be able to understand. We should not expect them to be able to understand. And we should aim to have a country in which it is a real choice whether to rent or buy, and there is no great advantage. You buy, if you like, doing DIY, otherwise you rent. That, for me, is utopia. <laughs> thank you ever so much. Uh, thank you very much indeed, Danny. Now, I'm sure people will have lots of questions and points they want to make, but we're going to have the responses first, and then um, we'll have time for questions and answers uh, before the end. Um, so thank you in particular, Danny, for doing that in 14 and a half minutes, which I'm, I'm jealous of that you can achieve that. And Ampower is now going to respond. So hi, everybody. Can people hear me? Oh, no, I'm much too small for that. Okay. Um, so I'm really pleased that so many of you have come to hear about inequality and housing. Um, I wouldn't use the word squalor to describe almost anything that we have today. But on the other hand, Beveridge would be very disappointed to find how far from having solved the problem of inequality and housing we are. I'm just going to say very quickly why I'm involved in this. First of all, in the 1970s, I worked with community groups in Islington that were being dishoused by council demolition plans, literally kicked out. And I worked very hard to form tenant cooperatives where they could actually take control of their own housing because they couldn't rely on the government. And I also, following on from that, in order to stop any more council demolitions of actually okay housing that needed doing up, I formed the first tenant management organisation in the country. And there are now about 200, which is why when the Kensington and Chelsea tenant management organisation, nobody had ever heard of them before, because they're tiny little local community organisations running a tower block here, a few houses there, a small area of an estate there. They're, they're on average 200 units. The Kensington Chelsea Tenant Management Organisation was an anomaly, and suddenly tenant management was kind of in the headlines. That was one thing. Um, secondly, I worked with the government for 10 years um, in the 1980s on the most difficult estates in the country, several of which um, were pretty riot-prone. Um, 
because at one point it did look as though I was actually, well, was I a solution or a cause, but um, I did my best to help. But I came to LSE at that point as a kind of shelter while I was working for the government. So I spent a day a week at LSE, and then because of the work I was doing on housing management and actually rescuing the most difficult estates in the country, including, for example, the Broadwater Farm Estate in Haringey, um, I was actually allowed by LSE to continue working with communities, and that's how I got drawn into um, the Lancaster West Estate following the Grenfell disaster, and I'm very pleased that Andrea's here, and I'm also very pleased that Sally is here, who worked with me on tenant management in Islington, so it's nice to see you. So I'm going to just look at what the consequences are of what happened with the Grenfell disaster and why I think it's pushed social housing right up the political agenda. First of all, there's a shrinking supply of social housing, and it's a huge problem because it means there is too little low-cost housing for people to be able to move into, as a result of which, increasingly, local authorities and the government are having to rely on a very rapidly expanding private rented sector, as Danny referred to, and there are now about a million low-income families living in insecure private renting, which is one of the biggest drivers of increasing homelessness. Secondly, and I'll say no more about it because Danny has done a very good job on it, huge polarisation, um, not only between social housing, private renting and owner occupation, but actually within social housing itself. So there are places that work and there are places that are much more difficult. Thirdly, really crucially, tenants are not listened to. And tragically, in the case of Grenfell Tower, we all know now that the tenants in Grenfell Tower were agitating for something to be done. They said their tower block was a huge fire risk. Um, nothing was being cared for properly. Nothing was being run properly. And it was a disaster waiting to happen. They said that in November 2016, the Grenfell fire happened. In June 2017, nothing could have been more ghastly. There were really so many mistakes. I'm not bound by the public inquiry. I'm not actually directly guilty of any of the things that went wrong. But inadequate regulation, inadequate for enforcement of fire safety, wrong choices of cladding, cuts of 4% in the cost of doing up the Grenfell Tower, which cost £8 million to do, um, but they saved 300000 on the cost of it. Really shocking. Suddenly, landlords jumped um, to action, and it was discovered, they didn't know because they hadn't counted them, that there were 10,000 high-rise above six floors, uh, high-rise blocks around the country. Suddenly, they discovered that right-by lettings on multi-storey estates had actually caused huge problems. Sorry, take the cough speech out of my mouth. Um, they hadn't actually got a full register who, of who lived in the Grenfell Tower. This doesn't only apply to the Grenfell Tower, it applies to every high-rise block in the country. Because where a flat's been sold on to a leaseholder, and then the leaseholder lets it out or passes it on to a private landlord, sometimes that flat is actually used by local authorities to house homeless families in a private letting. And in Grenfell Tower, there were three homeless families, all of whom, or two of whom, lost everybody in the family and one of whom lost several members. So it's a really ghastly contradiction that we've allowed the right to buy to run so far out of control. And in our 10,000 high-rise blocks countrywide, there are probably a million um, tenants. And we were asked by a company uh, that was really, really upset by what was happening. And thank you, John. I don't know where you are for being here. Um, 
to actually try and do something. We couldn't do anything about Lancaster West and the Grenfell Tower. It was teeming with people trying to help. But what we could do was try and reach this large body of residents and landlords out there. And there are now some very big initiatives going on in response to that. First of all, there's a review of building regulations, and the government has appointed, to their credit, a very benign lady who they thought would be quite benign. And she said, regulations not fit for purpose. It was a disaster waiting to happen. There's no system of control. There's no enforcement. It's too easy to get through the loopholes. I mean, she wrote a personal... Um, introduction to the review of building regulations interim report, precisely so that she could say those really strident things about a very inadequate system of control, which, because of the cuts, can't be enforced. Um, big housing associations in London have formed, with small housing associations, a review of the future of social housing, which John is actually on. The Chartered Institute of Housing has announced a programme rethinking social housing and we're helping them with the tenant input into that. Shelter, the homeless organisation, has announced a commission for tenants and the government has said there's got to be a root and branch review of social housing and are planning to produce a green paper on it. We'll see. A lot depends on this kind of audience, whether actually the government is held to that promise, but it could be hugely important. And then there's the public inquiry, from which there will be huge fallout over the next several years, I think. So what needs to be done differently? There is a huge sea change in several things that have been going on. So first of all, housing associations driven by the government, driven by the government's agenda of numbers, have been trying to build, build, build. They have to build between five and eight private for sale units in order to create one social housing unit. So of the 40,000 homes that they build, at most maybe 5,000 of those would be purely social renting. Meanwhile, they're demolishing estates like there's no tomorrow because every publicly owned housing estate has got this massive land value. And so if you demolish it and you build all these private homes with a lot of profit attached, you can then put back, as you promise, the social housing you've knocked down, except that it doesn't happen. So there's displacement, disruption of communities, and all of that. So, so that has now been recognised. That is actually, I wouldn't say official policy, but it's definitely the message coming out from government. It's definitely the message coming out from housing associations. And slightly to prove it, the joint vehicle in Haringey that was going to demolish large swathes of council housing in Haringey has actually been, well, it's just disappeared. It's not going to happen. Um, the West Kensington estate, which is right by the Olympia development, is not going to happen, and the developer is handing back the land and the estate to uh, Hammersmith and Fulham Council. Um, we've proved through some of our work in LSE housing that you can actually upgrade um, estates with tenants in situ. So the Edward Woods estate, which is adjacent to Lancaster West, it's a five-minute walk away, has been overclad, difference from Grenfell, it was overclad with fireproof material, and there was on-site management of the contract, and there was a concierge in every tower block, and there was an estate manager running the estate, and so it worked. And Edward Woods has actually hosted children's programmes and lots of other things for Lancaster West um, and the Grenfell disaster area as a result. There's also a big return to localised housing management where we were in the 1980s looking at really difficult council estates that were riot prone. 
we discovered the obvious, that you have to be on the estate and you have to be running it properly and you have to have a repairs team on the estate, you have to have caretakers on the estate, you have to keep the environment clean, you have to listen to the tenants, you have to actually be a presence that sorts things out as they arise. Ironically, Notting Hill Housing Trust was the first to return to frontline housing management, and it's been doing it for the last several years. But there's now a housing association in the West Midlands that's copied that model, where you go right back to the front line. And bit by bit, we hope, and we're promoting it very strongly from here at LSE, um, that the front line will recover its position. There's also been a focus on small organisations, so the government has just announced really radically that for the next five years they're going to fund community-led housing initiatives across the country on a small scale. Um, um, and you will need to wrap up fairly soon. Uh, okay. Um, basically, I think the biggest message of all is that you've got to listen to tenants and there are moves now to really put that into a solid uh, framework. The problem is that so much has happened to make social housing difficult and, from the public's point of view, not something that you should be proud of. But actually, there are some things that I think could change that. First of all, um, social analysts have responded very, very strongly to the Grenfell disaster. And I'll just give you one example. Glasgow Housing Association, the transfer from the City Council, within 24 hours of the, of the fire disaster, had actually sent its entire housing staff out and had reached every single one of its 45,000 uh, tenants personally. It had also set up a 24-hour helpline with a voice, a person, at the other end. Um, there's a lot happening um, in terms of recognition that social housing houses low-income, low-paid service workers, the NHS, public transport, and so on. Um, Theresa May has said we've neglected social housing for too long. I think that's quite an important statement coming from Theresa Ray. She's not a kind of catchy phrase person, but saying that we've neglected social housing for too long is a truth that needed saying. Um, the idea of outsourcing services so that you can't control them anymore is a complete disaster. And I have to say, I don't hold, I mean, I don't have any personal grudge against Carillion but it was very fortuitous that it collapsed when it did because it has really rammed home that you can't literally hand over responsibility for what you're doing. Um, the other thing is, through the work that we've been doing on what's called overcoming stigma in council housing, we've managed to prove tenants like where they live, they want to contribute, and when they're involved, they really enjoy it. And actually, they then deliver. So we've done an impact study of tenants' action following training, which shows that you get a multiplier of about 1 to 100. You help one tenant actually do something it thinks will help its community, and at least 100 people benefit it. It's also shown that you get this ripple effect from small projects. So small projects become um, bigger and have a longer um, impact. <clears throat> the problem side of what I'm... <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm on my last point. Uh, the problem side, I don't want to sound too optimistic, but I do think there's a lot to play for. Uh, the problem side of what I'm saying fits with what Danny said. There are huge pressures on low-cost housing. We need lots more of it. But social landlords do have the capacity to borrow, 
and they do have the capacity to build. They just have to be told to stop building expensive housing, which actually is very shaky on the sales side, as Dan has pointed out now, and concentrate on building less units but more low-cost housing. And if they did that, um, they would become less commercial, which would be very popular. They're not liked for being commercial. Um, and they would be more mission-oriented. So social landlords have a lot to do. Thank you. Lindsay. to get my uh, PowerPoint up okay, <laughs> down and right. uh, what, can you see yourself? Yeah, that's me, yeah. That's you, yeah. And then okay. on the yeah. show uh, from the beginning. Right. Excellent. Fantastic. Okay. <clears throat> well, uh, <clears throat> thank you to... Um, uh, to John and to Anne and to uh, Danny um, for asking me to try and give some kind of response to what they've talked about tonight and also to everybody for coming here because the size of the audience shows uh, what a significant um, belief that things need to change um, has occurred in the, in, the light of, in the light of the fire at Grenfell and, and the number of people who are interested in the topic of social housing and more importantly, what needs to change about, about the structure and attitudes to housing in Britain um, has come about as a result. So uh, I've just got a few uh, slides that I'll try and keep within time. Um, but, but really, uh, just to give some sort of context for my own interest in social housing, um, is a sort of a belief, really, that uh, in terms of media and political representation, um, of ordinary people's lives in Britain, really, um, whether they live in social housing or they live in you know, very ordinary board housing, basically non-elite people. Um, my interest in this um, is pretty much summed up um, by this quote by the late geographer Doreen Massey, who points out that contrary to what you might see represented on TV and films and in newspapers. Most people actually live in places like Harlesden or West Bromwich. Much of life for many people, even in the heart of the first world, still consists of waiting in a bus shelter with you shopping for a bus that never comes. Um, and um, ever since I read that quote about 10 or 11 years ago, I've always carried that with me because it's very pertinent to experiences I had growing up on a, on a very large peripheral estate outside Birmingham that, that had very little on paper in common with um, the Lancaster West estate, but also had striking similarities. And the place where I grew up was called Chelmsley Wood, and it was built, when it was built, it's called the Town of Strangers because it was built on displacement uh, and it was built on housing need. And it was built in terms of providing numbers of units rather than considering, considering place and considering people's needs in many ways. So it was designed and built very quickly in five years and it moved 60,000 people pretty much all at once 
out of, the, uh, out of inner Birmingham. It was built on Greenbelt outside the city boundary. But significantly, it gave my grandparents their first ever house. They'd stayed on the waiting list for year after year after year, probably about 20 years, initially, initially living in digs, then getting a flat, then getting a slightly larger flat, and all they ever wanted was a house with a garden. And finally, in 1970, they got that house with a garden when Chelmsley Wood was built. But the houses, which were very sort of self-similar, described by the reporter from the Birmingham, from the Birmingham Mail as looking like croutons tossed by a wayward child. Um, and so, having come from having come from that place, and then and then moved to London, and sort of realised that 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 landscape, that, that social housing landscape had, had, had uh, very specific qualities that weren't present in other places. I, I became sort of quite obsessed with researching um, social housing and researching really my sort of inner feeling really that, that, that class, class inequality had been physically built into the landscape, particularly in the interwar and post-war periods. Um, Immediately after the Second World War, uh, Nye Bevan was the housing minister as well as the minister for health because that back then, housing was regarded as such a significant pillar of public health that, that the housing, Ministry for Housing sort of was basically part of the Ministry for Health. Um, and Bevan's vision for council housing would, was that council housing would be so good that everybody would want to live in it, and the kind of the need for private property would kind of basically melt away. Um, that people of all income levels, all social classes, um, and from all walks of life would all pretty much live in excellent quality council housing. And the council housing that was built after the war, in the five years after the war, uh, tended to be very big, three or four bedrooms, two toilets, um, it was regarded as really important to have two toilets, not for any kind of sort of luxury proposition, but because people often lived in multi-generational families and had sick relatives to look after. So it was really important that, that there was a toilet downstairs as well as upstairs. And also large gardens where children could, you know, children could run free and you could grow vegetables. But that initial emphasis on quality was replaced by quantity after the Conservatives won the 51 election. Um, Macmillan, uh, Harold Macmillan, who was the housing minister for the Tories and then became prime minister, um, introduced a new form of council housing, basically, which he wanted to build 800,000 in, uh, 800, in three years, in fact, 800,000 in three years, and managed to do it, but by drastically reducing the size and the quality. So three bedrooms became two bedrooms, uh, only one toilet, smaller rooms, smaller, smaller bedrooms, and also in, an increasing number of flats. Uh, which people often people didn't like. It was it was proof that people often didn't like living in flats, particularly when they had small children. Um, and yet, uh, the Conservatives from the mid 50s onwards started to subsidise local authorities to build above the fourth floor. Uh, and so, local authorities received bigger subsidies the higher they built. And so that is how that is how um, blocks of flats and low-rise housing started to get higher and higher from the uh, late 50s, early 60s onwards. So that idea that nothing's too good for the workers was effectively replaced with the workers should be grateful for whatever, for whatever they get. And also there was a sort of developing narrative, uh, again pro propagated by Macmillan once he became Prime Minister, um, of a, of a property-owning democracy, basically suggesting that in order to be a full citizen, in order to be a member of that democracy, you had to own property. Uh, I think what he, re what he really, what he was 
suggesting was that was that property only would be democratised. That is, you know, the little, as Danny mentioned, the, 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 the little people would would get to have their mortgages. But it was that narrative was was built alongside sort of increasingly rushed and, and increasingly physically distinguishable mass council housing, often built a long way from city centres. Um, and so now. Um, the situation that Danny has described and the situation that Anne has described, um, there is so little new affordable housing being built that technically the, the, the situation we had in the late 70s um, where there was technically a surplus of housing and much social housing uh, was actually quite, was regarded as difficult to let rather than people desperately needing it. Uh, we now have a situation where um, uh, fewer and fewer affordable homes are being built and the government is now a prime subsidiser of private landlords uh, because for the first time since the 60s, when there was the last great mass um, council house building project, more people are now at the mercy of private landlords living in private rented housing than now living in social rented housing. And that's for the first time in 50 years. And we can see from that um, graph that um, in the last eight years, in the eight years between, sorry, the seven years between 2009 and 2016, uh, there was a sort of peak reached um, of, of nominally affordable rented homes built uh, of nearly 40,000, going down to only 6,500 from 2015 to 16. That is an absolutely drastic drop. Um, and so, you know, my interest in the way class um, has kind of built into that landscape in, in terms of the shape and form of housing and how social housing has become or became increasingly stigmatised largely because it was pushed, it was pushed to one side and marginalised by the property-only democracy narrative. Um, the, the kind of the austerity context of... of what happened at, at, at Grenfell Tower um, is largely um, uh, can, can be largely explained by uh, the borough of Kensington and Chelsea um, basically making uh, austerity cuts being an incredibly rich borough um, making austerity cuts kind of in the belief that it was an exclusively rich borough and effectively choosing to ignore the needs of its less well-off residents uh, Kensington and Chelsea are, are rich enough as a borough not to have to implement any austerity measures, but they did so anyway in the political context of we need to do austerity, um, which led to them losing revenue uh, of 160 million, uh, sorry, 167 million pounds. So they cut down their council tax rates while other boroughs were trying to, but were discouraged from raising their council tax above the 3.99% uh, legal cap for, for raising council tax. Uh, they cut their council tax down and residents actually received cash rebates on their council tax as if to prove that the council was giving good, good value, that it was giving such good value to everybody that it didn't need to spend all the money that council taxpayers were giving them. And in that sense, uh, says, uh, David White uh, from Liverpool University, Kensington and Chelsea effectively treated the borough like it was a company rather than a public service, rather than something that was there to deliver 
public services to, the, to all the people who lived in it. Um, so, in that context, Anne is right that I think that there is a sort of there's a, there's a crucial moment where social housing has come back onto has come back into people's minds really, um, and partly that is because I think a lot of formerly uh, people who formerly might have been able to afford to buy their own houses or people who formerly might have. Uh, been comfortably able to rent privately uh, without coming without becoming at the mercy of sort of uh, more uh, more dodgy or, or greedy landlords um, social housing is there's a, there's a chance to sort of restore the idea of social housing as a public good to the national consciousness and to the political consciousness um, and it's interesting that both Labour and the Tories' 2017 manifestos both stated that large numbers of new council houses must be built. At the same time, both manifestos did also appear to prioritise still the building of affordable homes to buy over those to rent. I think to appeal to those who wanted to sort of hang on to the, hang on to the, the belief, no matter how distant, that they might be able to buy a house one day. And yet, of the two main manifestos, only Labour's guaranteed secure tenancies and therefore lifelong tenancies in social housing. Because uh, obviously the Tories have, have, cut, uh, have cut back on um, tenancies so far and the right to a tenancy so far that they've sort of enshrined in law now their belief that social housing is basically just emergency housing just for a year or two. Uh, until you inevitably get back on your feet and then, you know, and then are able to qualify for a mortgage or whatever. Um, so I think there's a, a potential sort of paradigm shift in terms of how um, the political class and, and, and sort of the, the, the media, the political media nexus kind of treats social housing and treats the people who live in social housing, uh, hopefully for the good, because there's, a, there's quite a sort of a series of very tired popular narratives that have become entrenched in the last 40 years about uh, about the relative status particularly of different housing tenure you know home ownership has been pushed so far that uh, it, it's just become the be all and end all and of course so many people you know the amount of num uh, the number of people the percentage of people in private rented housing has doubled just in the last five to ten years um, so as Danny said, there needs to be a situation in which there is no longer any great benefit one way or the other, whether you own or rent a place. It should be a, either should be a tenure of choice, including social rented housing. Um, uh, in Nadine, terms could of, you begin to wind up yeah, in a moment? Okay. Thank you. Yeah, um, but in terms of uh, sort of reducing the, the, the incredibly strong um, sort of emphasis on... on, on class and inequality um, in different types of housing and different and how people living in different kinds of neighborhoods are regarded um, I think so much of the sort of the, the 2000s lexicon the sort of you know the long boom or the sort of false boom lexicon borrowed more from estate agents than utopian thinking and that's continued I think particularly going around London today just still seeing so many billboards using this using the sort of the, the lexicon of sort of housing it has to be about luxury and has housing has to be about return and the emphasis is on solvent homeowners and private renters consumer needs and desires rather than meeting essential needs 
Um, so let's rewrite the housing narrative and acknowledge that a free market in housing and urban development can't lead to equal places because the bottom line is not interested in the long-term well-being of a place or the people who live in a place, even if it pretends to be. Um, and finally, housing is a social asset and it needs to be recognised as such and decent housing is absolutely central to public health. Um, councils need to directly build a mixture of housing types and tenures according to people's needs in those areas and ensure that they've got the means to maintain housing and local environments pro properly. And to quote Danny, um, one way of putting housing and housing as a public asset and housing as a social asset back at the centre of the economy would be to um, completely upgrade and refit uh, the UK housing stock that we already have as well as thinking about uh, as well as thinking about building more because the energy saving trust estimates that doing that kind of retrofitting would create or support 4.8 million jobs and generate 2.8 billion pounds for the economy just from the outset oh thank you and that's it thank you <laughs> Thanks very much indeed to all three of you, and I'm sorry we're a little squeezed, more squeezed for time than normal this evening, but we, that, you have very kindly left some time for questions and answers. I should say to anybody who's thinking of asking a question that this is being um, recorded, and if the technology works, there will be a podcast, a videocast of it available um, in a few days. Um, so if you're not supposed to be here, please don't ask a question. <laughs> um, so... Um, there are people with ro roving mics, um, and it, I'll probably take you in groups. Um, if you could say briefly who you are, um, and then could you ask a question rather than um, presenting a manifesto, if you don't mind, and then we can, um, then we can have responses from our, from our three speakers. So there's um, somebody at the back there with hand up, and then there's going to be somebody here. Hi. Shall I start already? Yeah, please yeah. do. My name is Anastasios Papandreou. I'm an architect, but also working in the energy sector. In the energy sector, we have a very clear understanding of what is a regulated part and what is a commercial part. Because whatever has a, uh, let's say, a, whenever, whenever something can be done from anyone, any industry, any company, it can be the commercial part. And that what is a natural monopoly is a regulated part. Now, housing, by definition, is a regulated part. So my question is, do we actually follow the money that goes into housing? And I want to be more specific here. The prices are rising dramatically because of funds going in that um, are, let's say, not very justified. So the, the fact that we have all these funds being invested in London, driving the prices up, because it's not about the cost. The real cost is low. Okay, so you would like a commentary on, on the effect of the... Um, of the amount of money that's pouring into the London property market for other yes, reasons. Yes, and, and yep. if we're following okay. the sources, because that plays a particular role in how the housing may be then Okay, thank you very much affordable. For, for bringing that in. And then just yeah, here. Thank you. Uh, my name's Liam Kelly. I'm a housing consultant, and I also live in social housing. Uh, currently, the London plan is out for consultation, and within that document, which is what will developers have to comply with to build the housing <laughs> that's needed in London, Sadiq Khan has a criteria, a definition of genuinely affordable housing, 
which has three tiers to it. One caters for households of £90,000 income per year. The second tier is for £60,000 household incomes. And what he calls social rent is actually 50% higher than existing social rent. So while it's encouraging to hear that there's a change of narrative and a paradigm shift, it doesn't seem to have reached City Hall yet. Okay, okay thank you very much. And then just there, yeah. Just um, three rows back. And then I'll come to... Hello, my name is Mark Knox, I'm a private tenant. Uh, what's the quickest and simplest way to kill off housing as a speculation? <laughs> okay. Um, well, you might want to take some of those together. The money pouring in, how to kill off housing as speculation, um, and how we get through the idea of genuine affordability. Danny, can I start uh, yeah. with you? Uh, many sources of when the money was pouring in. It's slowed down now, which is great. Uh, but George Osborne helped to buy. He spent more on housing, on getting house prices up, than anything else, with a special discount for London. Um, so we had a chancellor who thought it was his job to make housing as expensive as possible, particularly in London. Uh, London plan, uh, I think Sadiq still has to deal with the government, hence it's not ambitious enough, uh, but it's a beginning. How do you kill off speculation? Falling prices. Once they begin to fall, why would you buy an asset that is falling? But then you need to know that the government is coming that isn't dedicated to try to hold those prices up. We should have a long-term aspiration of our property prices being the same as in Germany for the same property. And that's a long adjustment downwards that we need to, to get to. This may sound ridiculous to you, but just look at the properties in Britain at the moment and think who on earth is going to be able to buy them. The buyers are not there. Most buyers of private houses are university graduates, Half of all young women go to university now, and we've given them massive student loans. Right? It's going to end. This, is, this bubble is ending. The question is, will it end in a way which is well controlled by a government that understands, or is it going to really be carnage? Those are the two. Very quickly, um, there are some things I can't really have a very sound opinion on. But on social rents, um, it fits with what Danny said. You can't produce social rents without very significant subsidy. All social landlords know that. Everybody who tries to actually do it knows that. So until we get a subsidy system back in place, it's very difficult to produce social housing. Um, on the killing off speculation, I mean, I would do things that you're not allowed by law to do. Um, but the Swiss do control foreign buyers. And I keep trying to find a Swiss bank that wants to pay us to go and find out quite how they do it. I really think we're stupid not looking at what the Swiss do. They've been controlling it for years. After all, they've got these Alps everywhere. And it really makes it very difficult to build us all, all the housing that you want. And, and I'd just like to back that up by saying it's a very, very good thing for house prices to fall. I mean, we keep hoping that our house will fall in price because it's just disgusting um, for it not to. So there are things you could do on that. I mean, there's uh, the bedroom tax on social rents, 
There isn't a tax on private rents where you underoccupy. And there certainly is the very opposite of any kind of tax on owner-occupiers who apparently, on average, have two-bedroom surplus right across the country, which is grotesque, actually, completely untaxed. untaxed. But the other thing we could do, there are a lot of old people stranded in two big houses, and downsizing is easy to say and difficult to do. We have no hand-holding system in place. We've actually abolished as many of the frontline jobs as we could to make it as difficult as possible for older people to actually move to somewhere that's more manageable. So that's the other thing we could do. And finally, I'd like to really stress that actually sharing your home is quite a nice thing. We've actually got four-bedroom surplus, and we really, really like having LSE lodgers, and uh, we've got one room to spare at the moment. Um, oh, crumbs off. I feel really, really underqualified to, to comment on most of it. But, but what I would say is that I, I, didn't, I didn't say that, that uh, a paradigm shift uh, had occurred. I said that, that it, it's, time, it, it, it's, it, it's a timely situation that we're in and it, there's, there's the potential for it to happen and the potential... Uh, for committed people to rewrite the narrative rather than it is already happening. Yeah. Um, we started slightly late. Um, I think we could take two more questions if they're very short and if the answers are equally short. So just bear <coughs> it with the red tie. Uh, well, I think it's easier for the people listening afterwards if you use the mic. I'll just interest, sorry, oh, wrong way round, sorry. Um, as it happens, I'm on the board of a housing association, LNQ, so I, I'm sort of, it was interesting what was said about how the housing association sector. My question actually is about land value tax and whether you feel that could play a role if we actually reform the broader range of taxes around uh, property and whether you think it's actually practical in, in all honesty to push that through. I would also just raise a question mark about falling prices. I think many of us would agree that lower prices are a good thing, but I think that there are some consequences which we do need to think about, particularly in terms of the financial sector and what it would do to the banks. So, I don't think it's quite as simple as saying we welcome it. I do welcome it in principle, but I think we need to think through how we would manage the process. Okay. Any final question? Yeah, just at the front. And then we'll... <coughs> Sorry about the gender balance of the questions. In the front row. Oh, oh, oh what, yes? Yes, in that case, please ask, and then, and then the gentleman in front of you. Yes, sorry. Please. Yes, yep. sir. I'm sorry. This is for Anne particularly, but anybody else. You mentioned, I think, Anne, that uh, various local authorities in London were having to um, uh, build, but under great pressure um, to build houses for the, for the, um, for the without homes. And I wondered how this can be... Uh, made more um, equitable uh, in, for the council the difficulties of um, being pressurised because they have no money and uh, need um, special prices on on uh, um, <coughs> invest um, money for um, <coughs> to, to, in order to build because um, they're at a severe disadvantage and being pressurised in my particular area. Um, they're being forced to, to sell off <coughs> to private companies. Um, to, they're actually um, 
um, demolishing um, 317 houses for a, um, a, a new speculative uh, land grant, right. which involves building a railway. Right. And um, I'm particularly part of a, um, a group who are trying to um, okay. work out ways that um, this sort of behavior can yeah. be um, if made into um, to land yeah. Yes, if you, if you don't mind, I think we I think we have the point about demolitions yes. and and the lack of resources of councils. I think I'm afraid I'm sorry I'm going to have to stay stop there. Do you do you mind? I'm I'm, I'm sorry because we, we are out of time. So we have land value tax um, and we have the problems caused by demolition of existing property. And then could could you each quickly, come in yeah. very quickly? Uh, Land value tax maybe solves the, the problem of stopping uh, people from overseas buying housing. It's, it's quite tricky to stop people from overseas buying housing because you can always use a local person as a front to do it if you ever want to buy somewhere nice in Switzerland. That's, that's the way to do it. Uh, it's, it's still it, hard. It's still hard. I, I do quite like what the Swiss do. Um, <laughs> but uh, our banks will fail their stress tests uh, if housing falls much in value. You're completely right. But given what we're planning to do on the 29th of March next year, I really don't think we should have any faith that we're living in a, in a situation where we should have any certainty about the future of our banks whatsoever. Okay, really, really quickly, um, on my understanding, and I'm really not a financial expert, most housing wealth is not on bank loans. Most housing wealth is acquired money and acquired ridiculous values. And so I actually think the banks could survive that. That's my personal view. Um, on the pressure to build, um, social landlords do not have to demolish and they do not have to sell. It's rubbish. What they have to do is take care of the stock that they've got, collect rents on it, repair it modestly, pay their way in running a caretaking service, a repair service, a letting service, a void service, a control service, so that those estates pay their way. I know, I've looked at hundreds of rent accounts, and I know that they can pay their way. It's what you choose to do. And social landlords do not have to obey the government and just build, build, build for numbers. As Danny pointed out, we don't need the excess numbers. What we need is to take care of low-cost housing. There is a simple solution. And where they build, they should actually build low-cost housing. So the Peabody Trust put it very well. We need long-term, slow, patient investment in quality housing that's secure at modest rents. And we've just produced a report on can social landlords play a role in private renting? Yes, they can, doing exactly that. Some market rents pay their way. You do not have to go for maximum profit. You do not have to go for maximum build. You let other people worry about that. You look after your social mission and stop trying to be commercial. And then a last word. I think Anne should have it, really. <laughs> um, yes, well, I think, I think basically it's, it's, it's um, political will. There's just a chance to, there's a chance to, uh, to change um, political will in the favour of housing meeting people's needs rather than meeting rather than filling somebody's pockets, essentially. Yeah. Thank you very much.
Can I just leave you with, with one thought that Danny put up a picture um, or a reference to a Kensington Chelsea property on sale for £36 million. I happen to know, although Danny and I haven't spoken about this before, that the council tax on that property each year is £2,124. I carry these numbers around with me. Um, a Ban C property, a normal flat, somewhere like the Lancaster Westerbrook Estate, has a council tax of £826 a year. That difference is £24 a week for something that is more than 100 times the value. So there are resources there that we could mobilise if we had a system that was somewhat fairer. Could we ask uh, to thank our speakers?